0: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. It's been a year since we lost the great songwriter Adam Schlesinger. Today we're going to have an encore presentation of our tribute episode for him. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now, coming at you once again remotely. I have with me today Alan Seppenwall, Rolling Stone's TV critic who's making a special appearance with us today, and our friend Rob Sheffield. We don't have a happy reason for today's episode. We're doing a tribute for Adam Schlesinger, who died suddenly and unexpectedly from complications of COVID-19 at age 52. He was such a special musician, such a special songwriter, and people, I think, were just gutted to hear about this. I think a lot of us had a stronger personal reaction than we expected. He did everything. you know. He was, of course, a co-founder and songwriter Of Fountains of Wayne, but he also wrote a tremendous amount of other music from That Thing You Do to some of the songs in the movie Music and Lyrics to some of the great songs in Josie and the Pussycats. And in the last few years, from 2015 to 2019, he co-wrote all the songs for the show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, just song after song and style after style. And that's one of the many things I'm hoping Alan can help us talk about. But what a unique career, and I, personally, some of the people I admire most among musicians are people who basically went into an office every day and wrote songs, brill-building type people. And those are, to me, sometimes even bigger heroes than the people up on the stage who get all the attention. So Adam Schlesinger was an amazing example of that kind of person, and I think quite worthy of this episode. I'm glad we can do this for him. Rob, I'll start with you. How did your fandom for Adam begin? What were your personal interactions with him? What are your thoughts on, on this passing?
1: He was one of a kind. Uh, he was someone from an era when, when rock stars prided themselves on being very flamboyantly anti-professional, and he was someone who was a pro in the best sense. He was into adapting to different musical worlds and bringing something real, something heartfelt. He he really loved the challenge Of the song as a job, which is why he adapted so well to writing songs for stage and screen and TV, but also why he wrote such incredibly heartfelt and closely observed songs for his bands, Fountains of Wayne and and Ivy. My favorite band of his is Ivy. So I've, I was I was someone who was an Ivy fan who also loved Fountains of Wayne because of the kind of career he had, six or seven parallel careers. You know, you could be a huge fan of one of those bands without even really listening to the other. And you could love his songs on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend without knowing that he had this whole other life as a rock star. He just, he reveled in that kind of multiplicity of his talent.
0: Absolutely. So you became aware of him starting with Ivy. Maybe talk about what you liked about Ivy and... and- what place Ivy had in, especially in sort of 90s indie? Well,
1: I loved Ivy and I loved Fountains of Wayne and it blew my mind that the same guy was in both bands because the (laughs) bands are so different. Fountains of Wayne are so perfect power pop band with very slice of life songs, very songs, you know, about very specific places, very down to earth. Ivy uh, was, uh, you know, collaboration with a French singer, French influenced moodier sadder songs not as uh, guitar heavy and not as power pop heavy the ivy album apartment life is a 90s classic for me it's one of my favorite 90s albums for me that album was a place i go to feel feelings for quite a few years it was that album was a a a crying place for me Uh, songs like i've got a feeling or never do that again were just absolutely astounding and for me, it was really shocking that songs like that were coming from someone who's also in a band like Fountains of Wayne that had a lot more uh, rock on the surface and a lot more humor on the surface, a lot more Jersey on the surface.
0: Yes, one of uh, the misconceptions about Fountains of Wayne that I saw Adam complain about in an interview is that while there's some Jersey roots in the band, none of the members actually lived in New Jersey. They, kept, they were routinely referred to as a New Jersey band, uh, but not, not, not actually
1: true. But, well, as, as Keith Harris wrote in his really brilliant opus, oh, that's a good his, piece yeah uh, city pages he, well, he he pointed out that they were writing songs about Queens when you know when the rest of the country was just beginning to discover Brooklyn but also he was sort of a, a only in the 90s kind of figure he was such a quintessential figure of, of his generation that he was someone who found a creative work to do in all these different sort of outlets for these songs. Some of them very commercial, some of them very specific to the task at hand. He liked that kind of challenge. He had a Randy Newman kind of career with the pretty much the exact opposite of Randy Newman's personality. <laughs> and he, he admired uh, Randy very much
0: from what I understand it. I mean, so Adam grew up, I believe, in Manhattan and in Montclair, New Jersey. His mom, at least, was in media. She was a publicist. He went to Williams College in some ways, he was one of those guys who could have been the uh, the music writers who wrote about him, except he, he had this fantastic talent. And he, he he said in one interview that his you know he he got a sense that the music industry was hard enough to succeed in. You might as well have a lot of be knocking on a lot of doors, basically. And he knocked down a lot of doors. He did a tremendous amount of work. He claimed that he didn't work all the time. That he wasn't some kind of superhuman hard worker. It's just that he worked every day, and his work was writing songs, and he just kept putting them out. There's so many things that he did that I didn't realize that was him. For instance, Neil Patrick is a uh, song about how theater is now for straight people the other year at the Tonys. That was Adam Schlesinger. Alan, I have, I have a sense that you followed his career for a long time. You, you kind of, you knew, you already knew everything that he did, is <laughs> my sense.
2: Actually, I mean, I'm sort of embarrassed to admit that I had not heard of Ivy until, you know, two days ago when okay, we first started we talking about, about the feature. Um, I grew up 15 minutes west of the actual Fountains of Wayne store that inspired the band's name, and I had been you know really into power pop, you know, especially in the '90s when I got to college. Like that was around the time that the Matthew Sweet album Girlfriend came out, so that kind of music was really my thing. But I bought the first Fountains of Wayne album basically for the novelty of it. I just saw it in a record store in Hoboken. I thought oh hey I love that place let let me buy it and I was shocked <laughs> to discover that this was exactly my jam all the way through and so I got every you know all the other things that they did I you know went to see that thing you do music and lyrics I even with a friend we went to see the Cry Baby musical where he co-wrote all the songs that that ran very briefly um I just love that guy's work you know from beginning to end and i kind of kept hoping that fountains of wayne would get back together to put out another album and obviously that's not going to happen now and it's just it's awful
0: so yeah the other co-founder was chris collingwood also a really talented songwriter and i think it's easy to when you're when you're in a band with adam schlesinger it's easy for people to assume that you know adam's doing all the writing but no that's you know that's not the case chris turns out to be the the main writer for instance on, on red dragon tattoo the main writer on a Radiation Vibe, the first single. So, so there's, a, there's plenty of stuff. But Chris was, uh, Chris is, from Adam's description, was more of a kind of like wait for inspiration type of guy and not a not a multitasker. And so you just have two different kinds of personalities. And, you know, I think Adam's like speed and natural gift also came into play. But so there were two uh, great songwriters in the band. And apparently, and I hadn't really followed this, but sounds of Wayne, uh, you know, that they didn't quite have a personal falling out, but they weren't sure they could work together again. Chris felt that on their last album uh, and they'd been college friends. They'd known each other for for many years. Chris felt on the last album that Chris kind of had stepped back a little. Maybe he he said he was drinking a bit too much and Adam kind of, he felt took over and then they felt like they could never get back to the place of being equals again. So that actually, that's, that was sad to learn. I had somehow missed that, 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 that band had kind of had fallen apart.
2: I mean, I saw them play the literally the last concert I attended in person because I'm a middle-aged suburban dad, so I don't go <laughs> out, out to live music very much. Was I heard my wife a few years back said, hey, Fountains of Wayne is playing Mayo Pack in Morristown, New Jersey, and I'm like, we should go. And I went, and they rocked. It was awesome. I kind of wish I'd brought one of my kids with me you know, to, to try mm-hmm. to convert them to the cause. But you know, it, this was several years after the last album had come out, so at least you know there were reproach months here and there. You know, yeah, they I were th- able to work together again.
0: I, I think they were able to play live shows, but we're we're not sure they could ever do an album again. Is apparently the the deal. So. What's your favorite Fountains of Wayne album, Alan? I mean, I'm,
2: I'm going to be basic here, and I'm going to say it's Welcome Interstate Managers. I love all of them, but that one in particular, you know, which I was glad, like, I knew the band before Stacey's mom came out, so it was <laughs> one of the few times wherever I got to be the guy who said, oh, I knew them before they, you know, had their hit. But that album, from beginning to end, I wore the CD out until eventually I had to get a new digital copy. I know that you're an Ivy guy, and I want to
0: talk more about Ivy. But Rob, what is your pick for album by Franz
1: uh, Len? You know, one I've been playing a lot. One he produced, I guess, because he was such a like instinctively collaborative sort of imagination. The Monkeys album that he made a few years ago, which is really just kind of a one of a kind album in pop history. It's something that. It's
0: a fantastic album. Yes.
1: Yes, and an album that Monkeys fans had long since given up hope we would ever hear a Monkeys album actually made with love and respect made by a Monkees fan to sound like the Monkees. Because every Monkees album since the 60s had been done with a really sort of condescending and embarrassed attitude. And this album, it was like so many things that Adam did, it was really fan fiction come to life. And the care and the craft that he put into it, especially in a song like Me and Magdalena, which, you know, and he was always very quick to deny any credit for, for things he worked in in general. But the fact that they got this country ballad from Ben Gibbard, all these songs solicited from people around Adam's age, Adam's generation, who grew up loving the monkeys and never felt embarrassed about it. And the monkeys never got the chance to sing songs like this before. Songs written for them by fans. And it was just a, a once-in-a-lifetime, really once-in-pop-history type of album that many of us had spent our lives waiting for. I saw him at the monkeys. Town Hall show soon after the, album, well, right before the album came out. And he was, he, he was just there enjoying the show like any other fan. And we were talking and I, I said, you know, You're the first actual Monkeys fan to make an album. And he said, well, they're Monkeys fans and, and they were, they never got to make a Monkeys fan make an album before. It was wow. a, um, it, it, he was someone who, I, I love what you said about how he, he made music kind of like not so different from how a music writer would do it because He was always a fan and always had, you know, oh, what if you put, you know, the guitarist from Smashing Pumpkins and, you know, the drummer from Cheap Trick and Taylor from Hanson, what if you put them all in a band together? He was someone who made, you know, fanfic fantasies like that come to life. Right, we
0: didn't even, he had an entire band we didn't even mention.
1: (laughs) We could go on. He had lots of bands. We shall. We shall. Something like, you know, the monkeys album, it's, it's you know, it's the kind of thing that f- fans could have spent years dreaming for if we thought there was any hope for it. And it's only someone, something that a fan is as devoted and genuine as, and sincere as he could have done.
0: Rob, when it comes to Fountains of Wayne, are, are you a Utopia Parkway or or Welcome Interstate Manager's partisan? Or, Utopia United? Parkway. Utopia ah. Parkway.
1: That That is the one, I guess, where uh, just the sadness of it is, is I, I mean... Also, talk about a 1999 album that just does not sound like 1999. I love that they were already making jokes about getting tattoos and looking like the guy from Corn in 1999. <laughs> that is very ahead of the curve. So, I, you know, I love, I really, I, I, I love all the fountains of Wayne albums. But Utopia Parkway, that one really shocked me, took me by surprise. One thing, it was a second album, and the late 90s was sort of an a elephant's graveyard of failed second albums. Every band that had a flute kit in the 90s made a failed second album. It's unbelievable. And that they actually made such a brilliant second album, which was even, even beyond their stunning first. That was a shock for me. I think after that, I was never again shocked by how great they were. Whereas Utopia Parkway, it made absolutely no sense that they made a great second album
0: the poignancy started to come in and the characters started to come in in that album more. So the, the first album maybe had more, it was a little funnier. And then there we were with some, with these suburban tales with a lot of affection and a lot of poignancy and, and also just, but also just slice of life stuff,
1: like the song laser show, which I really love. Yeah. But something like, like fine day for a parade is on that album. That's a song that is so it, it's so funny on the surface, and the way that laser Show is, is funny on the surface, but also poignant underneath. You find Dave for a parade, uh, you know, but a mother, a suburban mom whose daughter's joined a cult. It's just an astoundingly compassionate, empathetic song. Absolutely, in no way designed to be any kind of hit in 1999. A, a song that only could have come from very shrewd, crafty operators who were very technically in command of their craft. But also, a song that only could have come from the heart,
0: yeah. And the cult part is taken care of in like three lines, I think. Years ago, she lost her daughter off to a sacred order, that's <laughs> coming yes. to work and work the earth, and that's all you hear about that. But it, it,
1: it tells you yeah. a lot. I'll, I'll, uh, also, the thing of like of young people singing about the problems of old people not a very 1999 thing to do, not a very so 90s boring. thing to do, and. It, it, it just the sort of the empathy and insight in that song was such a such a shock to me and even though it is a very funny song with like fantastic wordplay you know the, the bourbon suburban rhyme um hmm. it's just uh, that was the album that really shocked me and that was the song from that album that really shocked me Prom
0: theme prompt theme oh my god is it like as i think a bunch of people have cited uh, just a brutal couplet uh, in that song, as as we remember Adam's songwriting. Uh, you know, it's, it's talked about the glorious prom night, and then then there's just everything's great, and then and soon we'll say goodbye. Then we'll work until we die. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, brilliant, brilliant. So so yeah, that, that I I love that album. I I think I would probably I would probably choose Welcome Interstate Managers though, just because. The level of detail and the mix of just heart-tugging, nearly unbearable poignancy and really hilarious stuff is so precise in that song. And and as well as the same way you are talking about, just the, the fact that, it's, and it's true of, of kind of the whole catalog, but just who they're singing about, you know, and, and that the people who it's so uncool to sing about in rock and roll. And I think I said on Twitter, it's it's not like the it's you know it's people yeah in new jersey and stuff but it's not like the the people that bruce springsteen sings about it's more like the actual fans of bruce springsteen their actual lives you know like the struggling guppies and and the suburban dreamers both on that album and other albums but there's something there's there's just i think the most songs that i i love about Welcome in interstate managers and alan i wanted to get back to you about that tell me about what what hits you about that album
2: well one of the things i love about about it is just sort of how varied it is you know because you like you can go in three tracks in a row you can go from all kinds of time to Little Red Light which is arguably like the most hard-rocking thing that they ever did to Hey Julie which is so sort of gentle that I sang that as a lullaby to my daughter who was born not long after the album came out um, and that they can sort of do these big swings in sound even though the storytelling in each of them is so crisp and so clear, and like you guys said, so empathetic, just r- really dazzles me. Um, I, l- I love it so so much.
0: There's the Valley Winter Song, which is just transcendently beautiful. Uh, Hack and Sack, which uh, I re- which is just you know a- again. It's, it's a guy, it reminds me of, it, it, it's not that different from, the, there's a guy on the uh, on the first Steely Dan comeback album who's kind of the same guy. Uh, there's a similar story, um, who, who's remember? But in, at least, but that guy is less of a loser than this guy because the guy in the Steely Dan song had actually hooked up with, with the woman. And this one, it's just, he's pining after someone who sat in his class he seems to have never talked to, uh, who became famous. And, and then, it, you know, it has the, One of my favorite lines perhaps in any song ever written is, I I saw you talking to Christopher Walken on my TV screen. It was just beyond sublime. And then Bright Future and sales. Oh, sorry, Alan, yeah.
2: No, I was going to say, like, um, I remember hearing a live version of Mexican wine when they, like, they had just written it, basically. Like, you know, Chris announces at the show, like, here's a new song we just came up with. Let Uh let me see what you think. And as soon as he sings the first line, he was killed by a cellular phone explosion. The audience just starts cackling. they, They find it. It's just the funniest goddamn thing they've ever heard. And yet, you know, by the end of that song, like... It's another sad Eleanor Rigby kind of tale. It, it, they're able to be just so funny and so heartfelt all at the same time. I mean, when I was I was thinking about it yesterday, it's sort of, it's basically Fountains of Wayne and, and Schlesinger in particular is kind of like what I love about the Princess Bride, which is it, it's parodying all these things and yet it is all of these things at the same time which is almost impossible to do and when it works it's my favorite thing in music in film in television in literature so it's probably not a surprise in hindsight why i love them so much
1: isn't that the song that goes uh, i used to fly for american airlines
2: and then i got fired i used to for fly for united times. airlines then i got fired for reading high times
1: that that couplet <laughs> it, it hurts it hurts <laughs> a lot of that a lot of that album just hurts also something about that particular album that's way advanced beyond Utopia Parkway is that they're no longer late 20s early 30s dudes who are like who think it's a possibility that they might be hugely successful rock stars like there's a lot of middle-aged disappointment on that album that's another you know going back to Hackensack for a minute when he sings i used to work in a record store 2003 that's a very poignant line <laughs> mm.
0: The way that, that Chris sings the line, now I work for my dad, and the way he sings the word dad, like all the all <laughs> all the, all the story embedded in that is just incredible. But yeah, I mean, Rob, I, th- I think you're right. And I think that's it. The, the middle-aged sadness of it, I think is one of the things that makes
1: it pretty unique. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll just take, go back to Ivy just for a second. The Ivy album, Apartment Life, that's definitely an album of, that's, that's not an early 20s album and it's not a late 30s album. That's an album where, You're turning 30 and you're just figuring out that, like, what sucked about your 20s is not going to change. And there's a sort of young melancholy in that song, you know, where you're thinking about possibilities and thinking about disappointments. Interstate Managers, which is, that's a very different album. And that's like, that's really to continue your Springsteen metaphor that's kind of their darkness on the edge of town.
2: Which is my favorite Springsteen album, so it all makes sense to me.
1: Yes. You know, you guys have changed my mind.
2: That's the best. (laughs) <laughs> Victory! Also,
1: such amazing production by Mike Deneen, another brilliant power pop career who we sadly lost a couple years ago.
0: The whole Stacy's mom thing is interesting. It's, I think every interview we read with them at the time, they they seemed extremely dazed and confused by the success of that song. I think Adam once said, you know what everyone wrote about us is that we make hits for an alternate universe, so it was very strange to suddenly briefly find ourselves in that alternate universe uh so it it was strange and it also i don't think it did them any harm did it i mean a lot of a lot of hits do bands harm in their case i don't think it was i think it was probably pretty much for the good
2: no i mean i think it it definitely exposed them to people who wouldn't have otherwise heard them but it's not like it's so out of character for the band that like people who already like them would listen to that and say oh god they've sold out and people who like that, who discover the other stuff, would feel, oh, this is nothing like Stacy's mom. So, I mean, it certainly didn't catapult them into the mainstream, but I don't think it did them any damage.
1: Yeah, definitely not the kind of hit that
2: people are like,
1: I like that band, but not that song.
2: It was very uh,
1: representative. And, and also, because it sounds very much like a hit. I mean, it sounds you know, kind of like great quote that you quoted about the alternate universe hit. Seems like if you were making a movie about an early 2000s pop punk band, kind of like if you were making That Thing You Do about that era, like Stacey's Mom is th- that thing you would do that you would write for that movie.
0: Adam apparently told my old friend Jody Angelo that the purportedly the inspiration for his, for this song was, one of my best friends when we were maybe 11 or 12 came to me and announced that he thought my grandmother was hot. And I said, hey, you're stepping over the line. But at that point in my life, I wouldn't put it past anyone. So I don't know. <laughs> that would have been more of a Harold and Maude type situation, but they, they pulled back. Fascinating. I I have a strong feeling he might have made that up though. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, um. But
2: Rob, it's interesting that you mentioned that thing you do and, and what Brian, you said about the alternate universe, because if you think about it, in his side career, one of the things he had to do several times is write songs that were meant to be huge hits in yes. fictional universes. Absolutely, like yeah. I mean, that thing you do is an amazing song. And, you know, Brian, what you wrote about it in our list of, like, the best Schlesinger tunes is exactly right. Like, the degree of difficulty in that song that it has to be played as often as it does, that it has to be believable, both as something that a garage band in the mid-60s could come up with, but also that could become temporarily the world's biggest hit and also something that, like, the band would never be heard from again afterwards. It, hmm. t- it checks all of those boxes, and it's made by a guy who, other than this one tune, mostly operated in obscurity in his regular career.
0: Yeah, and we should yeah. go through some of his uh, movie and TV work because we're gonna lose Alan uh, to another obligation. But that thing you do is yeah, it's it's extraordinary. And Founds of Wayne barely existed at that time. He he was in the Ivy. He was just kind of starting to put together Founds of Wayne. He wrote it and and just knocked it so far out of the park that it's just hard to believe. And the other thing I, I wrote that I, in my mind, it's almost like he incepted it into actual pop history. It feels like maybe it was a hit in 1964 in my brain. So somehow it's kind of, it kind of, it it's like when Sync covered it as, as people were talking about on Twitter, they actually covered it because they were doing a, a decades portion of their concert and they used that as the 60s song. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I think I've heard yeah. it on oldies radio.
0: <laughs> that would be
2: amazing.
0: <laughs> but Alan, are you familiar with his work for uh, the Josie and the Pussycat soundtrack? Because that, that also blows me away.
2: I saw that movie when it came out and I have not unfortunately thought about it much since, but I know that the soundtrack gets a lot of love and that does not surprise me at all. So, Great movie.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so he
0: he wrote this song, uh, Pretend to be Nice.
2: It's so good.
0: Produced, by the way, written by Adam Schlesinger, produced by Babyface. Like how... <laughs> How awesome is that team? I wish that had been a whole album, but that he wrote a bunch of songs But that's the standout and that's an incredible piece of craftsmanship If you haven't listened to that recently, I, w- I would definitely check that out Also a lot of a uh, bunch of Adam Dirt's on that soundtrack by the way sneaking in there little known also It's so you have Adam Dirt's babyface collaborations. That's a whole other thing uh, But then, then music and lyrics and there's a weird fact about music and lyrics that I'll confess on the air that confused me which is I was very confused about the extent to which Adam did all the music to that because it, when you watch, part of the reason I was confused is because when you watch the movie, it says music by Adam Schlesinger. It turns out that was a contractual obligation that embarrassed him. He wrote three songs in that movie, but very key ones, including Find My Way Back to Love. That's, that's what it's called?
2: Way Back into Love. <laughs>
0: Way Back into Love, yeah. Which is like again this super key maybe maybe talk about the role that that plays in in, in that movie
2: all right so for those of you who have not seen music and lyrics Hugh Grant basically plays Andrew Ridgely you know he was one half of a big you know 80s British pop duo the other guy stayed famous he vanished into obscurity and he now makes his living you know he's trying to write songs and some Christina Aguilera type asks him to write a song for her and she gives him the title way back into love and he's struggling with it. And then Drew Barrymore is watering his house plants, And he discovers that she has a, a gift for lyrics. And they team up. And, you know, spoiler, they fall in love. But the song that they write, like that thing you do, it plays at least five or six times in different versions throughout the movie. It evolves. You hear them testing it out. You hear them recording a demo. They're trying it in different ways. When the pop star gets her hands on it, she rearranges it as a, a sticky and steamy, I believe she calls it, in Indian version with <laughs> with a sitar, uh, and then there's finally a version they play at the concert, and every single one of them works, it never gets old, and when you finally hear Hugh Grant and and Haley Bennett as the pop star sing it in the concert at Madison Square Garden, you think, oh my god, that's gonna be a big hit for him, and you totally believe hmm. it, which is the same trick he pulled off with, with that thing you do.
1: Yeah, and, and very similar to the trick he pulls off in the Josie and the Pussycats movie, that he's writing songs for this fictional universe where the whole movie, the whole conceit, only works if the song is absolutely convincing as a hit and it's it's pretty much impossible thing to do on command especially for you know these different fictional universes but he could do that seemingly on give him any situation and he could imagine what would be the number one song in that universe
2: because I, if you really think about it if you ever watch it, yeah. a movie about like or a TV show about a fictional stand up comedian their material <laughs> is never funny it's never funny <laughs> no matter what it is you know because any comedian who could write good material would hoard it for themselves And here's Adam Schlesinger who has, you know, a going, but not like hugely popular career as a musician. And he's writing these things that become hits or at least in fictional universes. And he's kind of tossing them off on side projects. He could just do that and give them away. And they, they were always believable
0: before we lose Alan. Let's talk about crazy ice girlfriend. I, I have not gotten into that yet. I I, I'm looking forward to it, especially now. I, I, I somehow didn't realize Adam's role. It somehow blew past me. Uh, And now a show that I had no interest in is something I'm incredibly interested in. But I mean, it it seems like listening to some of those songs, he pulled off something incredible and did it again and again. So how how did that work, Alan?
2: All right, so uh, Adam Schlesinger was, I believe, college roommates with the husband of the show's co-creator, Aline Brosh McKenna. And he was one-third of the songwriting team with Rachel Bloom, the other co-creator and star, and Jack Dolgen, who had... And the two of them came out of the YouTube scene, and they'd written a lot of parody songs there. Fuck Me, Ray Bradbury was, I think, their big hit and is (laughs) super catchy, too. Uh, And I highly recommend going to YouTube and looking that up, regardless of what it does to your search history. But they knew they were going to need at least two to three songs per episode, and Rachel and Jack on their own couldn't write that. And as we've talked about, Schlesinger was just a machine. And so he came in, and the three of them teamed up, and I believe they produced 157 original songs. That's what Rachel told me the other day. Oh, my God. uh, Over the course of four seasons. Some of them are pretty short, like you hear 20 seconds of them. But most of them you get at least two full minutes out of. So, you know, it's, you got to get several verses and several choruses. And it's always like these perfect pastiches. So there's a song about cold showers, and it sounds exactly like something that got cut from the music man. There's a song called the Very First Penis I Saw that sounds a lot like uh, like Mamma Mia, and it's definitely got an Abba vibe to it. Um, you know, there, there's there's all sorts of things. There's a Gentleman Prefer Blondes parody that I wound up picking as my favorite, even though there, it's, it's too hard to choose. There's an incredible New Jack song called Don't Be a Lawyer that I've played for our co-worker, Maria Fontura. And she's like, I went to law school and I wish someone had played this for me because it would be stuck in my head and I wouldn't have done it. Don't be a lawyer They just, they could do any, any genre, any kind. They almost never sort of touched on the same artist twice, even though they would do a lot of different show tunes or 80s power ballads or hair metal songs. And it was just, it, and it always worked both as the parody, but also as a really good song. Like with a slight tweak to the lyrics, you could imagine this being done totally straight and it would work. It, it was a really wonderful show, especially, you know, the music alone and it really carried a lot of the story.
0: There's no other show I can think of quite like that, driven that strongly by fresh songs week after week.
2: No, I mean it's, uh, I, I think it's been done a few times here and there, but it's hard. Like That's why a lot of musicals, when they do them for TV, it's a mix of covers, and every now and then you'll get an original. But this was all original. When Flight of the Concords, they did their show, the first season of the show basically exhausted their entire back catalog, and they very <laughs> reluctantly came back to do a second, and by the end of that, they were just burned out, and they said, you know, and I don't, we can't do this anymore, and for a long time, there just wasn't Flight of the Concords because of the experience of that, and here these guys were, and they were churning it out, and, you know, and it always sounded really, really good. There was, n- there's not a song on that show where you go, eh, they kind of phoned it in this week.
0: <laughs> when you talk to people involved in that show, what did they say about working with Adam?
2: Um, no, they they all raved about him. I I sort of I was at a party once with with Rachel and Jack and I they were very indulgent of my fountains of Wayne fanboyism. <laughs> they were just sort of like, "You guys are awesome, but you know who I really wish I was meeting right now?" That was Adam. They were very good about that and they could not have been more generous about how good he was at his job and how easy he was to work with. Um, so that was very cool.
0: Um, before we let you go, any any parting words about Adam Schlesinger?
2: Well, I, I just want to say, um, be, because I can't stick around to do the whole catalog, their last album, Sky Full of Holes, I am the weirdo who might actually put that as my second favorite Fountains of Wayne album uh, because mm. there's something about it, and maybe it's just because it hit me at the exact right age, you know, cause it's an album even more than welcome interstate manager or traffic and weather about middle-aged disappointment. Uh, and, you know, I've got, I've got a good life and a happy life, but there's definitely these moments that I could recognize throughout that album. And particularly there's a song called action hero oh, where yeah. it's told from the point of view so of like a good. dad. Yeah. He's, he's taking his, his wife and their two small kids out, I believe to, to a Chinese restaurant or some sort of Asian restaurant And the entire time, he's just sort of fantasizing about being a hero in an action movie and having a much more exciting life. And I'm like, I love my wife and I love my kids, but I have been there, man. I have entirely been there. And it's just, it really, it puts a smile on my face every time I think about it. And yet it also kind of works really well, I think, as a metaphor for this idea of Adam Schlesinger as this anonymous kind of nerdy indie rock guy who also in his side career could invent these fictional big hits like the ones he had to do um, for everything else so it was sort of, that song more than any any other Fountains of Wayne song almost feels like Schlesinger and a Nut really and knees.
3: He is searching for his keys at a
1: small
0: Yeah, and, and again things that you don't usually get in a rock song, someone dropping by at Mount Sinai where they're running through some tests which also hits a little different now but Alan, thanks so much for, for joining us. You know, I'm, I was thinking about that Neil Young line, you got to tell your story, boy, before it's time to go. And someone like Adam, like, you can't say he didn't. He he got out a lot of what was in him. And I, I, I find that, like, intensely moving, frankly, when you think about how much he did. And he he didn't waste his time, you know. We were saying there's, you know, this whole band we didn't mention. There was a band called Tinted Windows. In 2009, they made an album And I was saying it's the kind of band, if you let me just kind of like a puppet master put together musicians, I would probably come up with quite a few bands like this. Uh, And it's where you can't quite believe it really happened, where the the members were Taylor Hanson, James E. from Smashing Pumpkins, Bunny Carlos of of Cheap Trick, and Adam. And, you know, it's a fun album. It's, It's one of those things where, in aggregate, I think maybe it's more fun to imagine than perhaps the final product. But... But there was a lot of good stuff on that. What was your,
1: what's your impression? Of yeah, that? I love I love Tinted Windows. I still remember before the band recorded, uh, we ran a photo of them in Rolling Stone in Random Notes, <laughs> and talked to Adam about putting the band together. And it just seemed so comical that we had this photo. We said, now that we have this photo, why do we even need to do the band? We already have the greatest <laughs> rock band photo of all time. <laughs> right, Taylor exactly. Hansen and Bunny Carlos and James Iha in the same bed you know you could just retire at this point um (laughs) the album is fantastic and it goes with a lot of his you know the multiplicity that we were talking before he was someone who just loved entering musical worlds and and speaking their native musical tongue and combining these things with respect and affection. And that's why he was able to write fantastic songs about other people. It's why he was able to write fantastic songs for movie and TV characters. And it's why he was able to make great records for other people, like his his great, great Elegiac Monkeys record.
0: We didn't talk about that. this song, uh, Just a Girl by The Click Five, another Adam Slaster thing, which I think was like almost a top 10 hit. I think it was like number 11. Remember that song?
1: Unbelievable yeah I didn't know until 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 yesterday that that was him. He thrived on that kind of you know anonymous man behind the scenes you know bet you didn't know Carol King wrote this one. Carol King also <laughs> wrote that one. Carol King also wrote that one. He really he, you know you mentioned the Brill building before and it was definitely a tradition that he loved and honored and also mentioned Rainey Newman who you know like had, had these extremely voicey extremely comic hits but also like very much enjoyed doing, you know, anonymous song for hire work. You know, Randy Newman's favorite thing about a song is it's not just in a song, it's an assignment. And he loves that word assignment. And Adam was able to do that without ever making it seem hacky. You know, as Alan said so brilliantly about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend a few minutes ago, He never phoned it in that week, despite the fact that he was writing something like 150 songs for that TV show. He made them all (laughs) real songs.
0: I find it genuinely awe-inspiring. And it's it's sort of like, I was was talking to, uh, when I was talking to Grimes recently, uh, we were talking about more about production, but she was saying after she did enough sort of production of electronic music, and I asked her, kind of just speaking her language, but which is also my language, is is eventually we were able to see The Matrix of sort of production she's like oh yeah absolutely but in fact she said she preferred to listen to you know electronically produced music because she could see the matrix with that music she couldn't see it with you know more acoustically made music and I, I feel like there's no doubt in my mind that Adam schlester could see the matrix of pop songwriting you know and like it, it's he obviously at some point broke it down to its component parts and put it back together and could just manifest it
1: it seems like man. yeah and that goes inevitably with him being such like a warm and benevolent and, and thorough mensch of a person. He was just a great guy. He was so universally beloved um, as, as we've seen, you know, in the outpouring of, of love and grief in the last couple of days. He was someone I you know, I met him at a show. He just came over, didn't even introduce himself, just started talking to me. He knew my <laughs> name, started talking, and it was like he was continuing a music argument we'd been having for years. Didn't even introduce, it. like, just, you know, (laughs) he had some songs on it. Like, it it, it took a couple of minutes, but I was like, oh, you know, like, yes, (laughs) I know who this is. And it was just crazy, just that sort of enthusiasm and just fanboy energy, and that he was able to combine that with, you know, because doing songs the way he did, you know, all these different formats, all these different characters, it requires a certain amount of cold calculation, right? You have to be Mm. a mercenary hitman at heart to do that kind of thing. You're writing 147 different songs for a TV show and making them all authentic to the scene and to the character and to the moment. And that he was able to be that cold calculating operator while still having that burning heart and, and the warmth and kindness that comes through in his music. I mean, for somebody who collaborates with other musicians that distinctively, it's a personality trait. And that he was able to bring the monkeys together to make this album that they had never been able to get on the same page to make in the previous 50 years. That was a gift he gave to not just monkeys fans, but pop fans. And part of what's heartbreaking about his death is it seems like he would have done a lot more of that as the years went on. Kind of feel like the next 30 years of his career would have been, in some ways, as impressive and more impressive than. The past 30 years of his career and he would have made a great old music business guy yeah it's
0: uh it's pretty hard to contemplate he was a craftsman but also an artist and i think there is a suspicion there's always that suspicion of craft and being facile you know and i think it's it was always like a reason why some people were suspicious of paul mccartney too right it's just that something about it both coming easily and also just having that facility and knowing how chord progressions work, knowing how music works, people can be suspicious of that. But he was not, like you said, he was not a cold craftsman. He combined it with a lot of heart and also this this literary ability as well. Uh, for, yeah, for
1: absolutely. To observe absolutely. people. And, yeah. And, and from an era where uh, there was a certain bad faith about rock professionalism, it was the era when bands had to pretend that they, you know, tufted out in a van, you know, uh, <laughs> and that they were like despised geeks in high school and that they were like tortured and that's why they expressed themselves that way. Every commercial band felt obligated to pretend this. And that was something that was so shocking about Fountains of Wayne when they came out at the time that they were bright cerebral musicians who were really into the craft of it and really into the technique of it. Um, and that was part of their statement. And that was something that he never lost. And that, you know, as I mentioned before, being a huge fan of Ivy and being a huge fan of Fountains of Wayne and just being really like gobsmacked that you know the same person was in both bands when they're so completely different in terms of their sound, their sensibility. Of course, I hear deep affinities now, musical affinities and emotional affinities. But it was really funny that he was in these, two different parallel sort of careers at the same time yeah
0: ivy was a much more sort of metropolitan type of uh, and much superficially
1: cooler kind of band yeah i've i've got a feeling is to me it's just such a perfect song in terms of a song that is it hugely ambitious in terms of you know it doesn't do anything fancy or difficult it just it's just a straight shot melody from the heart. It's like Paul McCartney writing All My Loving or something like that. It's a very deceptively simple song that nonetheless, it it has just a tremendous power to change the rest of your day. And to me, like just being able to do songs like that, and that's not even the band that you're most famous for being in, you know? Um, <laughs> and because he was an instinctive collaborator and by absolutely all accounts, just, you know, a menschy guy, he brought that out of other people as well as, out of his own talent.
0: I think it also speaks to his ability, and obviously there are other people in the band, to, as you were saying about about some of his other projects, to dive into an aesthetic and bring it to life. I think, was, as you were saying, it's about Tinted Windows. Like, he, Ivy is such a specific thing, and it, you, even if you look at it, they did that cover album, and they picked their favorite covers, and it's such a, a lovely, precise mix of stuff that says a lot about where they were coming from, from Steely Dan to, to Serge Gainsbourg to the Ramettes. Uh, and The Cure, its like a, it was a, a very specific lane that Ivy were
1: in. Yeah, absolutely. And that they celebrated being pop esthetes. I mean, that was a band, you know, three people in the band, each of them absolutely unique as a talent. He blended well with different combinations of people, you know, and, and that he was a bassist is kind of poetic in a way, you know, that this is, there was something about him that was just instinctively, no interest in being a star or a celebrity, but his songs were everywhere. And I think everybody in response to his death learned a lot more about, you know, for instance, I didn't know that he wrote those songs at the Tony Awards. I remember watching the Tony Awards and thinking, oh, that's a pretty funny song that Neil Patrick Harris is singing. (laughs) Not once did it enter my mind, you know, oh, I wonder who wrote it. And of course, finding out that he wrote that and people having those other experiences, people like, oh, he did the songs for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Oh, he had a band in the 90s. Oh, (laughs) he had other bands in the 90s. Oh, he had bands now oh, he did the songs for music and lyrics and Josie the Pussycat. It's just this kind of like astounding widespread career that kind of took a sort of, not just professional, but aesthetic pride in being able to create all these different types of music with all different types of people for all different types of audiences.
0: Absolutely, and I'm glad we were able to at least do this for him today. Uh, Rob, thanks so much for for joining me. Thank you, Brian. So that's today's episode. We'll be back next week here on SiriusXM volume channel 106. In the meantime, Rolling Stone Music Now is a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can. But as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.